My name is Tim, and if I look vaguely familiar to some of you, it's because I'm a member here. I usually sit somewhere over there. If you're new here this morning, you may be wondering, do they let just anybody get up and preach <laughs> on a Sunday morning? Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> the fact that I am standing before you now really is all the evidence that you need. Actually, a few months ago, I got in touch with Milo and I said, hey, as we're going through the book of Romans here, there's a particular passage uh, that is near and dear to my heart. And if there's an opportunity for me to share when we get to that passage, I would love to. And so here we are today. Now, the book of Romans, we've been going through this for, what, 27 years, something like that so far. Uh, it's been a while. This is a big book. There's a lot in it. I mean, the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's big work. It is the bulk of Christian theology all within one book. Now, I've got this sneaky suspicion, though, that when people think of the book of Romans, I think what most people are thinking of is like Romans 1 through about Romans 14-ish. That's where the meat and potatoes are. That's the good stuff. And then once we get to 15 and 16, it's like, okay, let's, let's get this over with as quick as we can. And I am here to say, no. The Apostle Paul does not waste words. There is good and life-transforming material found all throughout the book of Romans, from one end to the other. And so we're in Romans chapter 15 right now. And I want to read to you, starting with verse 22. It says this, This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed and the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Book of Romans. 
big, heavy-duty theology here. We have to realize that part of what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's writing to the church in Rome. They haven't met yet. They don't know Paul yet. They've heard of Paul. And so he's writing to them and saying, hey, I know you've heard of me, but you don't really know who I am yet. And so I want you to know who I am and what I believe so that you know that I'm legit. Boom, book of Romans. And then chapter 15. And I want you to support me as I go on my journey to Spain. This whole passage here that we just read, this is about generosity. In fact, the Apostle Paul has been taking gifts from one church to another church to bless them. And now he's calling on the Roman church to be a blessing to him so that he can bring the gospel to Spain. Everything in here is about generosity. This letter, the book of Romans, not only is it a great theological tome, it's a missionary support letter. It's exactly what it is. Now here's the thing. Barna, which is a Christian research institute, recently did a study on generosity. And one of the major findings in their research is that different generations understand generosity differently. On any given Sunday here at Randall, we have five generations represented. So the chances that you are sitting next to somebody that thinks about generosity differently than you do is very high. It's almost certain. And if we don't address this, all it's going to do is lead to friction. And so where do we go from here? What I want to do for you now is I want to give you a a 30,000-foot view of biblical generosity. Because this really is one of the most important concepts in the entire Bible. And in order to that, we need to go to the beginning. We need to go to Genesis chapter 1. Starting in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, what God could have done is he could have said, okay, everybody, here's the deal. As you're going through life, you're going to get hungry sometimes. Sometimes you'll get thirsty. Here is food. Boom. This is food. Boom. This is drink. When you're hungry, eat food. When you're thirsty, drink. He didn't do that. 
What did he do? He gave them every plant out there for food, all these different fruits and vegetables and everything is crazy. God was ridiculously generous to us from the very beginning. What do you like to go out for when you go out to eat? My wife and I, our go-to for a date night, it's Indian food. We love Indian food. Now, I'm very much an omnivore, but I kind of lean meativore. And when I go to an Indian restaurant, though, and I open that menu, oh my goodness, there's about 3,000 different things in there, and at least 1,000 of them are vegetarian. If there's ever a cuisine in this world that could get me excited about vegetables, it's Indian food. It's fabulous. It's evidence of God's crazy generosity. And that's just the beginning of it. Let's keep going. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Starting with verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Just leave that last slide up there for me for a minute. This passage here is referred to as the Abrahamic Covenant. This is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. I refer to this passage as the hinge on which the entire Bible swings. Make no mistake, the reason that you and I are here today is because God is keeping his promise that he made to Abram thousands of years ago. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We receive God's blessings to this day. And what is blessing apart from Generosity. Blessing is a form of generosity. And it continues on from there as we continue to read into our Bibles. You know, we meet Moses and God uses Moses to bring his people together. They leave Egypt. They form a nation, the nation of Israel. And God gives them a bunch of rules, laws, things that are kind of black and white so that they can know this is this, that is that. If you do this, you are right with God. And as part of that system, they also created a system of tithes and offerings. Now, if you take tithes and offerings and you boil them down to their very essence, what are they? It's simply a form of showing that I trust God and I'm going to be generous towards God and towards others. That's it. And God pretty much tells his people, if you do this, if you trust me and you are generous towards me and towards others, things are going to go all right. But as we read the Old Testament, we see time and time and time and time and time again that the people do not trust God. They are not generous towards God. They are not generous towards others. And things go very badly time and time again. We see prophets 
like Hosea, Ezekiel, Amos, Malachi. They've all got the same message. You have stopped being generous towards God. You have stopped being generous towards others and you have stopped trusting God. We need to turn this boat around now or things are going to get worse. After Malachi says his bit, God goes silent. They endured 400 years of God's silence. These are the people whose very identity is tied up in the fact that we hear from God. Rest assured that the silence that they endured was deafening. And so finally, Jesus shows up. And he starts teaching an awful lot of things that have people's heads spinning. Go read Luke chapter 15. Oh my goodness, the story that we call the prodigal son. Wow, don't just read it. Study it. There is a lot going on below the surface there. It will transform your life. And in the very center of that story, we see a father who is crazy, generously in love with his sons. John, when he was writing his gospel, in the third chapter, somewhere around verse 16, he says, for God so loved the world he gave. People refer to John 3.16 as the gospel in a nutshell. It's this tight, irreducibly reduced version of the gospel. And smack in the middle of the gospel is God's generosity. We cannot understand the good news of Jesus Christ apart from generosity. Okay, Tim, you've you've made a point. You've explained to us that generosity is a, a big and rather important part of the Bible, but what do we do with that? Where do we go with that? What do the next steps look like? Well, we have a few choices. give you one piece of advice. Be honest. He knows more than you can imagine.
last. Welcome, Neil. As you no doubt have guessed, I am Morpheus. It's an honor to meet you. No. The honor is mine. Please, come, sit. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole, hmm? You could say that. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. <sighs> Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more.
In the movie The Matrix, we meet Neo, who was brought to Morpheus, who tells him that the entire world that he has ever lived in is a lie. It doesn't exist outside of a computer. The entire world as he's ever understood it is simply a computer program. And Morpheus takes him on this journey for him to become unplugged and to step out of the computer and to live and exist in the real world. And I'm here to tell you today that each and every one of us is in exactly the same place. I'm not overselling this. Could I have my next slide? Morpheus says, it is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth that you are a slave, Neo. Feel free to insert your own name there. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. It's at this point that Morpheus offers Neo two pills to choose from. I have no pills for you this morning. Ed might, I don't know, he's a pharmacist. Um, I do not come with pills. But I do have a question for you. And make no mistake, the way you answer this question will determine for the rest of your life whether you live in bondage or in freedom. In your bulletin, there's some little fill-ins there. You may want to be ready to write something in. There's one question for you, and here it is. What do you own? What do you own? That's it. Some of you are probably sitting there thinking, oh, I don't know, I, I got a car, I got a house, uh, clothes, furniture, furnishings, whatever. Jot, jot those things down. Put them down in there. Go right ahead. What do you own? In the 20th century, there was a pastor named A.W. Tozer, uh, considered one of the most godly men ever. He uh, wrote a number of books, the most famous of which was called The Pursuit of God. And as an aside, if you want to pursue God with your life, go buy a copy of The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. It'll be one of the best things you've ever done. Right at the very beginning of his book, he addresses this very issue. He says, Before the Lord God made man upon the earth, he first prepared for him by creating a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. In the Genesis account, the creation, these are called simply things. They were made for man's uses, but they were meant always to be external to the man and subservient to him. In the deep heart of the man was a shrine 
where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God, without a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. But sin has introduced complications and made those very gifts of God a potential source of ruin to the soul. Our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. Men have now by nature no peace within their hearts, for God is crowned there no longer. But there in the moral dusk, stubborn and aggressive usurpers fight among themselves for first place on the throne. This is not a mere metaphor, but an accurate analysis of our real spiritual trouble. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. God speaks and galaxies come into existence. The universe exists because God says so. Tell me, what can you point at and say, God did not create that, God did not create that? What can you point at and say, that is mine, or that is mine? You can't even point at this and say, this is yours. God created all of it. My own body is not my own. It is the property of God's. It does not matter if you are a millionaire or flat broke. The lie is that you own things. The truth is you never have, you never will. God does, and that is good news. Now, I grew up in a house with a lot of mouths and not a lot of money to buy food. I'm the eldest of five kids. And my father, to his credit, he went out there and he tried all kinds of different businesses, jobs. He did a lot of different things when I was growing up in order to put food on the table for our family, and I give him great credit for that. Eventually, we ended up with our own dairy farm. Now, he had been born and raised on a dairy farm. He worked in the dairy industry for years, and he would be a dairy farmer to this day if he could, no doubt. But after we'd been on the farm for a while, um, we realized that the man that we were buying the farm from was a crook. 
and that we were just one of many families that he cycled through this farm and led us into bankruptcy. So we had to leave the farm. We were in our new house. And I remember the day that the owner of the farm came to our house. Standing in our dining room. And I have never seen before or since a shouting match like I saw between my father and that man. My parents ended up going through bankruptcy twice. It left a mark on me. I've seen what happens to families when they go through things like that. Now, if I knew people were coming after me with guns and bombs and were trying to kill me or something, honestly, I'm actually kind of okay with that. That's kind of par for the course for being a world Christian. Do you want to know what my fears are? Like all of them, all of my major fears. They all reside in one category. It's finances. The things that scare me to death, that leave me in bed at night unable to sleep, in a cold sweat, every single one of those things is related to finances. Well, what if, what if we can't pay this bill? Or, or what if the car, it's almost dead here. What am I going to do when it dies? How am I going to come up with the means in order to do this? I went to college to be an earth science teacher. I was good at science, I knew how to communicate, and I knew that if I showed up to work every single day, I would get a paycheck. No faith required. But as a student, I got involved with the campus ministry. God transformed my life. And toward the end of college, God said, Tim, you're going into ministry. I was terrified. I was petrified. But in God's goodness, he spoke to my fears in that moment. So I became a campus minister. I've been one now for 18 years. Now sure, we've been through thick and thin, but we have never been without. God has always provided for us. A few years ago, about five years or so ago now, I took on some additional responsibilities within Campus Ambassadors. I started overseeing the support raising efforts of Campus Ambassador staff here in the East. And over the course of those five years, I grew to love these people, these missionaries. I love college students, but I love the missionaries just as much now. These people are my heroes. These people say, okay, God, I was going to be doing this, but you've called me to this. So I am going to go now where you are sending me. I'm going to go be among this group of people here, and I am going to pour my life into these people. I love missionaries. We attract amazing, and they're so different from each other. Some people are really great at these things, and others are good at this. And it's like, man, if I can come alongside these people and help them with this side of their ministry so that they can go out and do what they're great at, sign me up. Earlier this year, I got asked to, to take on a new role. I now oversee the support-raising efforts of all campus ambassador staff uh, in the United States and Mexico. 
The gist of my job is this. I come alongside our staff. I say, hey, I know you. I know what you do on campus. I love what you do. And I know ministry is awesome at times and terrible at times. I get it. But I'm here for you. And I'm going to walk through this with you, through the good times, through the bad times. I married a missionary's daughter. I have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly sides of ministry. And I never want to see a minister, their spouse, or their children walk away from God because they think he's broke. My God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is generous. He is good. He has been through my highs. He has been through my lows. He's the only one who's been through all of it. We live in this world with this cage that we cannot see or touch or smell. And my desire is that every missionary, and by the way, missionaries, they're just regular people like you and me. They really are. And they've got all the same struggles that you and I have. And so my desire is to help every missionary, every one of their supporters, everybody that I can meet begin to walk out of what I would call two-kingdom bondage into one-kingdom freedom. Over here, we have God telling us things, but then we also have the world telling us things. you got to take care of number one, right? God is saying over here, I own everything and I am good. Trust me. Follow me. I know where we're going. This is what we have to do in this life. Now, the Apostle Paul, not only did he write Romans, he also wrote 1 Corinthians. And in chapters 9 and 10, he talks about running the race of life. And he says, run the race of life in such a way as to win. Here's the thing about the race of life. In the race of life, you must carry everything you own. Do you own your house? If you do, I would dearly love to see how you run carrying your house. That would be interesting. Now, I ran track for six years and I loved it. And when I went out there for a race, I was wearing these super light running shoes. I was wearing shorts. I wasn't even wearing a t-shirt. I was wearing a tank top. I don't want anything holding me back. I want to run in such a way as to win. We didn't carry anything. The only times we carried anything in this race was when we had a baton. And the whole reason for the baton was so that I could pass it on to the next guy so that he could take the race from there. What do you own? What do you own? I want to run the race of life so as to win. I don't want to carry anything. In Christ, I own nothing. I possess a number of things, 
but I'm not the owner. Now, the irony is not lost on me that my last name is Stuart, which means somebody in my family's history at some point was probably a steward. Somebody who takes care of somebody else's stuff. It's like going to Panera and meeting a guy named Baker. That's, that's the situation I find myself in, okay? I own nothing, I have everything, and get to enjoy everything in Christ. So where do we go from here? I want to deal with this on two levels, individually and corporately. Individually, I'm giving you homework right now. I'm going to give you homework and I want you to do it just for a few moments every single day this coming week. And actually the homework begins the moment you walk out the doors of this church. And here's what I want you to do. In fact, I'm going to dare you to do this. This is a straight up dare. Here you go. As you walk out of the church today, as you approach your car, I dare you to walk up to your car, to point at it, and say, that is not my car. That is God's car. I dare you. As you drive home, as you pull into your driveway, I dare you, point at your house and say, that is not my house. That is God's house. And let it soak in. Go into your house and start pointing at the items. That is not my television. That is God's. That's not my dresser drawers. That is God's. That's not my refrigerator. That is God's. Go and find your most valued possessions. Maybe it's mom's wedding dress or great granddad's shotgun that's been passed down for three generations. I don't care what it is. Go to it. Point at it. Say, that is not mine. That is God's. I've been doing this for a few weeks now, and let me tell you what has happened to me. When I do this, I feel something loosen around my heart. You think you own things, you don't. Your stuff owns you to the degree that you think you own it. That is the bondage that we find ourselves in. And what I have found is that as I go around to my stuff, and I point at it, and I speak truth at it, feel the tightness that that thing has on my heart loosen. And I feel lighter and freer and more joyful and better able to run the race of life than ever before. That's my homework to you. Next week, come find me. Come find one of the pastors here. We want to hear your stories of what it was like for you to release to God that which you thought you owned. The worship team can come on up to the front here. One more thing I want to address corporately. Generosity. What does it look like for us corporately to be generous? We need to start asking ourselves real questions. 
Are there churches around us that we need to be more generous with? Are there different communities in our neighborhoods that need God's generosity poured into them? How about this own congregation? What does it look like for us to be more generous internally? I've been in ministry long enough now to see certain things done very well and certain things done very poorly. And it doesn't matter whether it's ministries or corporations. One of the things that these, that almost all organizations do very badly is leadership empowerment and power or leadership transition. In order for us to do this well, what we need to do, and I have done this, is to pour into others. And as we pour into them, say, all right, now it's your turn. And to take some of the power that you have and to let go of it and to pour it into somebody else. I have done this. I was the director for the UB ministry for nine years and then I turned it over to somebody else. I knew it was going to be hard. I had no clue just how hard it was going to be for me. A lot of my good, bad, and ugly all bubbled to the surface. I learned a lot about myself when I took the power that I had and I gave it to another. Well, guess what? The woman who's been running our ministry for the past five years does a fantastic job. I could not be more pleased with her. But I never would have known that if I did not take power that I had and generously poured it into someone else. This is something we cannot afford to be good at. We need to be great at this. Now imagine for a second if every Christian in the United States understood the truth that you now understand today. You own nothing. God owns everything. And they all, every Christian just in the U.S. began to live this way in the freedom that God desires for us to live in, not in bondage to things, but in Christ's freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that you have been set free. So it is my desire for you that this week you take steps. Maybe they're baby steps, just pointing at things and speaking truth at them. But take steps to this week to step from bondage into the freedom of Christ. We want to see the world change. But in order for the world to change, it needs to start here. I need to change. And then maybe we will change. And then maybe we'll be able to bring change to this world and that this world would know the freedom that God desires for us to live within him. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for how good and generous you are to us. You are not a poor God, you are a rich God. You own everything, always have, always will. And we are so grateful for that truth. Lord, I want to live in truth. And my hope and prayer is that every single man and woman here today would begin to live in truth and that that truth would set them free. We have so much stuff in America. Lord, all that stuff is yours. Lord, that you would do the hard work of detangling its grip around our hearts, that we may live fast and free and joyfully in you. We love you, God, and we desire to follow you today. 
In Jesus' name, amen.